Hello, welcome to episode number 146 of the Apologue Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. I have a new sponsor, and the sponsor is... Bose All Natural, everybody. I don't know if you know about this, but I had Steve on the podcast last year, and he was talking about his beer company that started with his dad. And they have, amongst a bunch of different flavors, they have two we're going to talk about right now. The first one is Lug Tread. It's crisp, balanced, and refreshing. Lugtred is a lagered ale. It's a term they coined. It's fermented like an ale and cold-aged like a lager. It's been Bo's flagship brand since they opened in 2006. As of 2017, it's now available in 355 milliliter cans. For the first time, it's won more than 20 awards, everybody. And the other one I'm going to tell you about is the full-time IPA. It's hoppy, fruity, and bold. It's their newest full-time brand, which is how they got the name for it. For tasting notes, full-time IPA pours hazy deep gold with dense white foam, aromas of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine. I think that's good. A balanced bitterness that underpins the flavor. It's this medium-bodied ale finishes dry with lingering hop and fruit notes. It's delicious, too. Yummy, yummy, yummy. They sent a couple of cases over, and it is delicious, everybody. Let's not forget about my Amazon shopping affiliate program. If you like to shop on Amazon and you like to support the show, go to applelog.ca slash Amazon or applelog.ca slash US Amazon if you're from the US. And when you do that link, you get redirected completely right to Amazon and you will shop and you'll be supporting the show. And it's a very cool thing. If you bookmark those links every time you shop, You'll be supporting the show. If you want to do it the old-fashioned way, go to applelog.ca and click on the banners located on the right side. Locate your country, Canada, USA, or the UK. Same thing. Bookmark those links. Shop on Amazon. Support the show. Cost you no extra money, too. If you're interested in supporting the show on a monthly basis, go to patreon.com slash You can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees. Cancel at any time. Go to applelog.ca slash shop to buy a t-shirt and maybe some music. And if you're on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show and give it five stars, please. Like the show on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash applelogpod and follow me on Twitter at simonhead666. And I'd really like to welcome Bose. Bose, this has been a thing I've been chasing down for the past eight or nine months, and it's finally come to fruition. I drink Bose. I love Bose. I love the way they, they've basically made a brewery that is all their friends. So it's kind of a neat thing. So all the friends. So there's some punk rock in, in Bose All Natural, everybody. So today on my show is Derek Emerson. Derek Emerson is a very old friend, dear friend of mine. He played in a band called MSI, and right now he's writing a book based on the Toronto hardcore scene from the 80s. He's a uh, very knowledgeable person. He's done other things. He's, he's made documentaries. He's also played music. Here he is, everybody. Derek Emerson on the Apple Log Podcast. I don't remember for the first time I ever met you, but I'm pretty sure it was with Al Nolan. And uh, Yeah, I, I would think it would be tied in with uh, Al and Moby and those guys. I don't exactly remember the first day either, but uh, yeah, it definitely would be from those people, not crowd. Yeah, you're sort of the Beverly Tavern scene-ish type stuff. Is that is that ring a bell? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I guess by the time I had met you, I had started drinking, but up until that point... Uh, maybe you know a year before that and and prior um you know i was pretty straight edge guy so yeah i wasn't really a bar scene kind of guy i would be more at the clubs like to see bands yeah places like ildico's and um you know the silver dollar and whatever the apocalypse places like that uh as opposed to like a beverly tavern which is people kind of hanging out and drinking you know that wasn't really my my crowd but by the time i met you maybe i was in university and i think um by that point i'd Learn the joys of drinking. <laughs> the joys of drinking. Now, someone who, I mean, you're straight edge. You were straight edge. <clears throat> what what drove you to the dark side? Um, well, I guess the reason why, it, like, I guess to back it up, 
Um, so I met a sort of lifelong friend, Glenn Salter, and uh, we met in like kind of grade school, like grade seven. And um, we were both into like we were both like really into music and heavy, like, you know, the heavy kind of like metal that was going on at that time or whatever. And we ended up doing our first fanzine together and being in our first bands together and whatever. So we kind of we stuck together and we were into it for the music. But the music that we were into, most of the people that were into that were also into the lifestyle of like, you know, drinking and drugs and all of that. Glenn and I were pretty young when we got into that and it wasn't our thing. And we kind of couldn't understand it, I guess, on a few different levels. Like, we didn't understand people going to a show and getting so wasted that they didn't experience the band. We didn't understand the logic of that. Yeah. Um, and also, because we were kids, um, we, were, we were pretty poor. We didn't have an income. So we didn't have money to go to shows and drink anyway, even if we wanted to. <laughs> um, so we did, like, that whole thing, we didn't understand it at all. Like, it didn't make any sense to us at all. We're just like, this is, you go to a show to listen to the music because the bands are great, right? Yes. I don't want to miss the band. So, um, and if I, if I do have any extra money, I want to buy something from that band. I want to buy their record or their shirt or whatever. And so, yeah, that's what we did with our time and money is concentrate on music and, um, and writing about it and then eventually playing it together and, and all those things. So we were kind of our own sort of like uh, mutual support group, I guess, you know, with Glenn and I, we, we had our each other's backs because neither of us had an interest in drinking or drugs, but we had interest, a, a pretty hardcore interest in the music. We're pretty like we live for it, right? So yeah. that's all we thought about, and so that's how that's how it all developed, I guess. And then when we got into a band, we finally had a you know stage to actually talk about that, and that's what the band MSI that we started. Um, that was kind of you know one of the things we we talked about in our early songs was um, we didn't really preach you have to be straight edge. We we're just saying we are, and you know that's a different way of looking at things, and. And one is not better than the other. This is our choice. So that's why. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of our thing. Um, and and then how I I guess fell off the wagon or whatever was when I went to university and um, sort of stopped playing in the band a year or two into university and you know, started hanging out with the, the university kind of crowd and they were a little bit more into that scene. And uh, so, anyways, whatever. You have a drink or two and you start having fun and one thing leads to another and you experience things you didn't when you were younger. Yeah. I find that the people who were straight edge that take drinking, uh, they feel like they have something they have to catch up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You feel like you you you've missed something for a while there, or whatever. I don't know. It does seem to be a thing that people go through. Whatever. They're all just kind of phases that you go through in life, right? Yeah. You change over time, and your opinions change, and um, you know, people whatever they make fun of bands like youth of today or whatever if you ever caught them having a drink you'd be like come on you hypocrites but i mean like be realistic they wrote songs when they were 17 and now they're you know 47 and mm -hmm. times change and you experience different things you move on right yeah because yeah. if we're all the same person at the age of 17 it would be really hard to get around in life i've never really thought much of it one way or another to be <laughs> honest like at the time i guess i did but since then since the university days I've gone through phases where I haven't uh, drank or whatever for a long time. And then you, you go out and you have some drinks with people and I just don't think of it as a thing. It's just yeah. whatever you do it if you want. And it's, as long as it doesn't really take over your life and you know, you're dependent on it, then no worries. Yeah, for sure. And you know, when you said as a band, you spoke about being straight edge, not how everyone should be straight edge. And who, as people, we don't like to be preached to. And that's sort of like, that was a good approach, you know, with, with the band. It, well, we thought so, and um, I guess there's another thing that I haven't told you about, but there's a plan in the works now, um, there's a record label that wants to, there's two record labels actually, that want to work on putting out the um, all of the MSI recordings. Like We recorded a lot of songs back then, but we only put out two seven inches, and the reason for that is because we didn't have money to pay to finance a, a full-length album. Um, at one point, we were kind of talking to Brian Taylor about putting something out on Fringe, but it didn't happen. So we ended up just taking the tapes back and putting out the second seven inch. Anyway, there's a bunch of songs left from the first and second studio sessions we did. And there's a couple labels. There's one in Hamilton, Schizophrenic, and there's another label in uh, Paris, France called uh, Minstrel Records. And they're talking about putting out all that material now. Anyway, point being that we've been listening to those songs recently because we've been thinking about how, what songs to put on this, um, on this album that we're finally going to have after 30 something years. <laughs> and we were listening to some of the lyrics and yeah, like it, it's 
to us at the time, it seemed a bit preachy, but now listening to it, you know, with the hindsight, it doesn't seem that way. It definitely seems like we were saying, you know, this is for us and you can do what you want and good for you and good for us, you know? Yeah. And, and at the time it was actually kind of funny. One of the things that like, remember when we played our first show, we opened it for SNFU and we didn't know how crowds would take us because there wasn't really a straight edge scene in Toronto prior to us existing and, or straight edge band. Anyway, there was mm-hmm. like a straight edge people, but anyways, there wasn't really people like saying that on stage. And so we didn't know how people would take it at a punk show. So we opened for SNFU and the reaction was really, really good. And shortly after that, I remember being asked by, um, or somebody asked us to play with the goofs. And I remember thinking, that's probably a really bad idea because their crowd is like full on into drinking. And, and again, with the exploited, somebody invited us to play with the exploited. And we took both of those shows because we thought, I mean, you know, it's whatever, it's, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But I remember at the time thinking we could actually be in some trouble <laughs> getting bottles thrown at us or whatever on stage. But in both cases, um, those bands that were their crowds and the bands themselves were into the whole drug drinking scene or whatever. Both of them thought that um, it was actually kind of cool to play with a band like us that wasn't afraid to go up there and say what we thought. And um, they kind of, I remember like Steve Goof saying, you know, like those guys have balls on them. Good for them. They go up on stage and say what, say that kind of shit at a punk show. Good for them. Yeah. And, um, you know, it felt kind of good that people accepted that, even if that wasn't what they were into. It's like they, you know, hey, I'll respect your opinion. You respect mine. We can still play shows together. Yeah. That was kind of a cool thing early on when we played some shows with those type of bands be accepted both ways right yeah the scene too is, is it was smaller and more embracing and and less diverse when it came to well it was diverse but at the same time it wasn't like you're gonna go over there and we're gonna be over here and there was like metal kids hung out with punkers and punkers hung out with like yeah it was a it was a pretty healthy healthy time too this is like what late 80s early 90s uh this would have been 80 like we started in uh, 86 yeah yeah so it was like, yes and no. Cause like prior to that, like we started going to shows, I guess around 84 or something like that. And we were metalheads going to some punk shows and it wasn't very, a warm reception. <laughs> it was pretty, <laughs> it was, uh, we didn't get the worst of it, but a, a couple of years before that, like in the 82, 83 sort of timeframe, there was a rockers against punk sort of uh, thing going on and rockers would attack punks. Right. And, yeah. and the, the common, the common line that we've been hearing while we're doing this book is that, all those early punks have the exact same line. Hey, nice hair, faggot. That's what they got yelled at. <laughs> yeah. By, like everything, it's hilarious because every single person we've interviewed from that time period says the exact same phrase. <laughs> nice hair, faggot. So Is that, that what the name the, of the book is? The, you going to call the book that? That's not a bad idea, I guess. I <laughs> know. Uh, nah. second, second, thought, second thought, that's a really bad idea. Yeah. But um, no, but like, it is, it's funny that they all had this common experience. And that was like mm-hmm. rockers to beat up the punks, right? Yeah. So naturally, a year or two later, when people like Glenn and I would go to shows, we had long hair. But we, like I said earlier, we were into it for the music. We weren't into it for the party scene or the or, or the divisiveness or whatever. We were just there because we liked those bands. And so pretty quickly, the punks saw that we were authentic and they we were really into what was going on. And so they accepted it. And um uh, so it did take, there was a period, I guess, of what I'm saying is that where the, there was a period that wasn't that accepting. Like it, a hazing, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was, a, there was a leeriness of punks versus metalheads versus skinheads. Like, there was a, there was a bond early on, and then it kind of kind of broke away, and there was a bit of a bit of different factions, and then it kind of came back together. And then I think it's, you know, towards, maybe even towards the end of the 90s, I think it started to divide a bit again. Like, it's, because like you were saying, more people got into the scene, and then people got into their own little segments and kind of hung out with each other and not so much as a group yeah yeah and yeah it's it's unfortunate that that there was that time like you say like punkers and metalers you know i even i was in high school there was we had one punker and it was simon harvey (laughs) Mm -hmm. one punker and then he would he would like go see shows and he was he's now the the informative person when it comes to like all things punk and 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 it's sort of like trying to, I don't know what I'm, I think what I'm really trying to get down is like, it's a, it's just music, you know what I mean? And we're all just trying to make music. And, and, and I think MSI was kind of more honest with what they were saying. And there was, there was no real bullshit about it. So when you said something, you meant it. And there was a sort of a haze of like, we're trying to be popular or we're trying to like, mm, 
push into something or into a different what I'm using sixes and nines, but a market or something like that? No, we definitely weren't thinking about any commercial market by any means. <laughs> like there's zero thought went into that. Just acceptance if, if, though. Just acceptance from you weren't really searching yeah, we, for acceptance. I mean, if we were searching for acceptance, we went about it in a really horrible way by thinking about things that people didn't really want to hear about. <laughs> so yeah, it would have been a really bad marketing plan on our part if that's what if that's what we're up to. But no, nah, we didn't really think about that. It was just sort of you know, I guess we were listening to bands and um we were hearing them express their points of view and that's how we felt at the time. And like mm -hmm. I said, people change over time and I don't think you should be held to something necessarily that you said when you're 16 or 17, yeah. but that's what we felt at the time. So we thought, okay, well, we'll write about that. And most yeah. of John's lyrics were on that personal level, as opposed to the political sort of side, I guess, you know, you can't say the personal is political, but, mm -hmm. um, but it was mostly just about, you know, his, his feelings slash our feelings as a, as a group. And, um, yeah, that's mostly, mostly what we wrote about. And to your point that you just said earlier, uh, you know, it's all just music. That's mm -hmm. an interesting statement because that is how we felt that, like as metal, metal kids, you know, listening to Slayer and Metallica and those bands when they first came out in Venom and whatever, and then local bands like Sacrifice and Slaughter, it didn't seem weird to us at all that we would also be into direct action, chronic submission, sudden impact, like, so when we first started going to those local band shows and we started getting this like weird look from people, we didn't understand it. We we're just like, what, how does this work? Like you're listening to heavy music. We're listening to heavy music. We can do that together. Right? Like it yeah. didn't seem to us at first, we didn't really understand why there was a bit of standoffishness. And like, we went into it kind of pure of heart, just naive, I guess, thinking, you know, Hey, I want to go to the show and you want to see that band. So we should get along. Right. Yeah. And it didn't take long to, to get to that point. Like I said, it, like a couple shows in, it seemed like people were like, oh, okay, these guys are okay. <laughs> but, but we looked at it that way. Like if you look at our early zine, we did a zine called Metallic Assault, which has metallic in the title. So, you know, it would, yeah. it would kind of signify it's mostly about metal. But if you look at the content, there was a lot of punk bands, like pure punk bands that were in there too. And, um, and local bands and whatever. And like, we really didn't see a difference. Like okay. we just, so yeah, but it was a good time. It was a fun time to be into that. Like when it's all kind of all those bands are kickstarting and then you, um, you're exploring them and it's all like a new frontier, you know? Yeah. Is this sort of around the time of crossover too, or like hardcore is sort of blending into punk and punk was kind of yep. blending into hardcore and, and in, yeah, pretty cool times. And it was still all revolting against bad eighties music, you know? So that was, Exactly. We had a common enemy that way, yeah. you know. Yeah. Remember, yeah. Tears for Fears or Madonna was on, uh, was on MTV or much music, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So, you went through the 90s. MSI kind of had a, like a big a, a spike and then sort of went away, right? Like, did the band, when did the band stop being a band? Um, so we went on a Eastern tour I and mean, as soon as we came back from that tour, that was in the summer of 1990. As soon as we came back, we broke up. Hmm. Cause that's when shit we was going to get good, right? <laughs> well, we felt not, yeah. we felt like the, we felt like sort of a disillusionment with the scene. Um, yeah. I think it was partly because of the, like now that we're doing this book about hardcore, it's it, some of the things it kind of makes more sense in your, in your mind now. Like I think, our strongest period as a band and as a scene, as a scene that I was part of, was when uh, the bridge and Ildico's existed, and that was like from late eight, mid '85, I guess, to end of like '87. Mm -hmm. um, two two and a half, three year period, I guess, that there were shows like every other day, and there was a like all your friends would go to that club and hang out. And um, sometimes you wouldn't even go in to see all of the bands. You'd be hanging out on the side, outside in front of them on the street and just be talking to friends. And it was just a very good social scene and it was a good music scene and it was pretty safe. There wasn't a lot of violence for the most part. Mm -hmm. And, um, but when that club closed down, it kind of felt like punk was a bit homeless for a while. Like it, it kind of bounced around from there'd be some shows at the Elmo, um, Silver Dollar, Clock Tay, um, Sibony. You know what I mean? And then Apocalypse. And it just kind of kept bouncing around. And it didn't feel as much of a secure scene as it did if, uh, like a year or two before. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like when you say things were about to get really good, like they were in a sense of like punk was blowing up a bit. Yeah. And getting more popular and, and getting into the malls and all of that. But from that sense, it, it was about to blow up. And it would have been, I guess, good to be in a band 
if you if your goal was to become more popular, there was more people yeah. going yeah, yeah. going to see you. I guess a couple years later, but that, like I said, that was never our goal, mm-hmm. and I don't know that that ever would have happened with us. Um, we were kind of a band that we just like to have fun, and, and like if you watch some videos or live, listen to live tapes of us now, we were horrific live. Like we, <laughs> but we didn't care. Like it was yeah. it was it was so not important to us. It was, it was comically unimportant to us. <laughs> about hitting the notes right. We couldn't have cared less about that. Yeah. It, it was about it was about putting on a show for the people for the kids that would come out, right? And like those are the bands that we like to see, the ones that would kind of go crazy on stage and do goofy things and whatever. And you know, right from the name of the band, it's it's more stupid initials. It's a goofy name, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's you know, like we were there sort of to have fun and and not take ourselves too seriously. And like I said, we didn't talk about politics and a lot of the stuff that you know punk bands are known for. We didn't really do that yeah like we would get we would get on stage and encourage people to roll around like worms you know and that's kind of the things we would get into and, and we would wear goofy hats and uniforms and and you know bring dolls on stage like it was just ridiculous stuff and especially on that last tour that we went out east like we we brought everything with us we brought all these stupid props and things and we're just being goofballs and the audiences seemed to like it for the you know the shows that we played but mm-hmm. um yeah, I don't know. We came back and it just it didn't feel the same as it did a few years earlier. And I guess people were starting to like do different things too. Like Tim left the band and moved to Montreal to join Rise. Yeah. So we had a couple different drummers fill in, and but didn't feel quite as like as much as I loved those drummers. They didn't feel like the same core group of guys that started the band. It seemed like it morphed, right? Yeah. And then I went to, I went to university, started hanging out with that crowd a little bit more. Glenn just became completely disinterested. He actually kind of quit slash got kicked out right before we went on that tour mm-hmm. um yard was supposed to be our drummer on that tour and he basically a couple days before the tour decided that he wasn't going to come <laughs> so that <laughs> happened so we ended up getting uh todd laverty from uh oh, yeah. nothing yeah 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 and he had like three days like basically we called up todd and we said we got this tour book yard can't go um, you got three days to practice. Do you think you can do it? And he's like, yeah, yeah I know all your songs. I think we practiced with him through the set. Like one day, I think we practiced with, with Todd. We went through the set twice. Yeah. And then we, a day or two later, we went on tour. <laughs> and that guy killed it. Yeah. He was awesome. Yeah. So I haven't heard I that mean, name in forever. I, I yeah, yeah, that's a great. Well, he actually, it's funny because um, I lost touch with him for like a decade and a half. And about a year ago, maybe I came across him through somebody, whatever, on Facebook. And uh, so we ended up getting in touch and we had nice correspondence. Now we're pretty much in touch regularly. Uh, but it was pretty funny. He he um, told me that joining MSI for even though it was only a few weeks that we went on this tour, um, that was one of the best highlights of his life. <laughs> to, the point where, to the point where he got a humongous MSI tattoo on his arm. Oh my gosh. That's on our, that's on our Facebook page. You see a tattoo of uh, MSI on there. Yeah. Uh, like he said that was like a huge thing for him. And it, like it was a moment that he was just like, um, you know, he wanted to really, he realized he wanted to dedicate his life to music. So it was kind of funny actually, because we were all getting out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, was, he was full on getting into it. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing for that. He was able to join us and we loved having him on the tour. I thought it was amazing. And, um, if that inspired him to keep going on music, good yeah. for him. Do you think leaving, like doing a tour, going East and, and achieving what's considered a tour, would that be sort of like, okay, that's something that we've done as a band uh, what else can we do? Um, I don't know. And then, you know, that band sort of dis- disbands because is that, is that a situation where you've achieved it? Ah, well, okay, we're good. I don't know. Like I think, like, I think MSI was a bit of a live band in the sense that like people like to see it and it was a spectacle and to have fun and whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, the recordings, we had, we just had trouble trying to get them released because yeah. there weren't really, there weren't really labels that were pushing that stuff. Like, Again, with most of the Toronto hardcore bands, what you found from that earlier, from the 80s period, is that everything came out on cassette. Yeah. Pretty rare that anybody even had a 7-inch, let alone an album. Um, if you look at the 80s stuff, like the early, like the sort of 82 to 88, 89 kind of period. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then like Deep End and some other bands started to put out some, some records like in the late 80s. But it, it just became kind of disheartening, I guess, to... Um, record stuff and write songs and do all this stuff. And it just didn't seem to be an outlet to help you put the stuff out and get it distributed. Yeah. So you tried as best you could to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, to whatever degree we were successful with that, the records got around to, you know, some people and, but it would have been nice to have a label like a fringe or something like that, that would have been a little bit more prolific to help us and, and other bands. And so I think that's part of what, like our disillusionment with the, the business end of things. Like none of us were business minded. Yeah. Um, we made a lot of mistakes, I think along the way too, like, we played on a ton of shows. It's funny to look at the flyers from that period from like about 86 to 88. We're on like every second show. It seems like MSI is playing. And I think people got sick of us because you just, you know, you could see us any day of the week and we should have been a little bit more selective about the shows we played. And we should have taken that time to go out of town more instead of kind of staying at home. But I guess none of us were motivated to buy a van and book a tour. It was harder to book tours back then. No internet. Oh, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. It's all yeah. the same stuff I'm sure other people have talked about. So we ended up um, just kind of staying in Toronto. It was like a cozy little, you know, like you could play all these shows. We're getting offered tons of shows, so why would you go, you know, try and uh, book a tour and, and live in a van and play in Kentucky for four people and yeah. lose your shirt? Believe me, I, really seem- I, I asked myself that question a hundred times. Yeah, like it doesn't seem that appealing back then, right? It's like, no. So... I'd do it tomorrow, yeah. though, for fun, for a week. I, I think it'd be fun to do. Yeah, I mean, we did that. We did the go away for a weekend here or there, go away for a week or whatever. Yeah. And But we never did a big tour. Like, our brother band was Sons of Ishmael. Yeah. And they had a much more ambitious uh, outlook. And we did our first little tour together in early 87. We went down to the States. We played in Ohio and Kentucky and stuff. And um, just like a long, you know, four-day weekend kind of thing or whatever. But both bands look at look back at that as one of our favorite times. It was just yeah. the eye-opening experience of going to the States, playing some shows in weird spots. and um, so. But we came back and just sort of continued to play locally mostly, and, you know, in the province at least, mm-hmm. maybe out as far as, like, we went out to New Brunswick and things like this. But we never did a full, like, North American tour, whereas Sons of Ishmael did a couple of those, and they did a couple of European tours, which wasn't yeah. common for hardcore bands in the eighties to do Europe or even North America, really. Yeah. Um, obviously there are some, some exceptions to that. Um, like, you know, DOA or SNFU, people like this, but I'm talking about like Toronto bands. Like there yep. weren't a lot of the bands like YYY or direct action or those bigger named, you know, young lions. Typically they would just play like maybe in Detroit, maybe in Buffalo, that kind of thing, Rochester, but they wouldn't really venture too far into the States and definitely not to Europe. Except for maybe problem children was one that did that kind of stuff a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that was Europe when they had different money and every and border crossings and stuff. Like, yeah, <laughs> I heard some of those stories, the Sensation Mail stories. Like, were they robbed? Were they? Did they get robbed? Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, but you, you talk about border crossings. We had enough trouble just getting into the states, let yeah. alone trying to negotiate European countries. Yeah, we we went we went to uh, play a show in Buffalo one time. I think we were supposed to open for. Ludacris, maybe, or maybe it was Agnostic Front. I'm not sure. Somebody, anyway. We're supposed to open for this band in Buffalo. We took all of our equipment, and we got kind of stopped at the border and harassed a little bit. But what we didn't know is that a couple years before, when Glenn was underage, he changed his, he physically altered his birth certificate. So he changed the date. Like, he liquid papered out the year he was born, and he and he typed over top of it to make it look like he was born a couple years earlier so he could get into bars, right? <laughs> yeah. And so we get to the border, and the, the guard questions him on that. And uh, he says, well, what's going on here? And he goes, did you change this date? And he goes, and Glenn says, yeah. And the border guard says, well, why did you change the date? And Glenn's answer was, to fool people, I guess. <laughs> Probably not the best idea when you're at the border. So, of course, we got turned back, back and they uh, they threatened, you know, don't try and come. Dumb punks. We went back, and we rented the, the sleaziest little hotel room in Niagara area there, and we dropped off our equipment, and we tried to go across again, and we actually got across. <laughs> and so we ended up going to the show, and um, and the, whoever the band was let us use their equipment. We just showed up late and said, hey, can we borrow your stuff? And, and they did. So, um <laughs> Yeah, so we ended up playing the show, but yeah, it wasn't really the smoothest entry into America. No, no, no. I I went to Europe in late, like early two thousands, and that's after all, like the European Union and everything. And it's a whole different trip now. Like you go in with your instrument, and they're like, "Hello, come on in. What are you doing? Playing? Awesome, great, have fun." You know, it's it it was way different back in the early nineties. Like, you know, the wall was still up, <laughs> right? Well, the wall was up, but from what we heard from Sons of Ishmael is that 
um, because it was rare for bands to come over from North America, they would get a pretty good turnout at all these shows yeah. because like all the promoter had to do was say from Canada on the flyer. And these people would recognize and the same thing coming over from Europe. We recognized it here. Like I remember when Rob Power came here from Italy, I remember freaking out going like, I can't believe they're actually going to come across the, the pond to come and play in Toronto. It's yeah. craziness. Right. And so it was pretty rare other than like a few British bands that had followings like GBH or exploited or something, UK subs or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, like there were, there were not too many bands like, like real hardcore bands that were coming over in the eighties from Europe. Yeah. So same thing with sons of Ishmael. When they went over, they got a good reception pretty much everywhere they went because it was just rare for bands to come over from Canada. So people yeah. would support that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the uh, and I've heard stories from people who like would go see shows in Europe in the '90s and buy everything on the merch table. Like they made no money, but that somehow they'd managed to gather up all the money they could and buy everything off the merch table, whether it be like the headlining band or the opening band. They would yeah. just buy stuff, you know. And I was, I've, for years, I've been trying to ex- figure that out. Like, you know, why why doesn't North America embrace this sort of like this culture and this art and uh, the art, you know, it's a loose term, but why doesn't it get embraced in the fact that I want to support this, you know, and it's not like that anymore really over there, but there was a happy time when people were like, awesome, you know, like, I guess if we had a, like a bunch of German bands come over and they're our favorite bands, then we would probably be really stoked too. So I don't know. Well, I remember on that, um, we played, I guess it's at the end of the month, people get their welfare checks. Yeah. And we played in uh, Quebec City like the day before the end of the month. Mm-hmm. And we, we played on a bill with, um, I think, Infamous Bastards opened. And then we played. And then uh, that Boston band, Psycho. And, um, I mean, the place that we played in was I mean, pretty good size. It was like a, I don't know, like a Lee's Palace kind of size place or something, right? Like, I don't know, 500 people or whatever, 600 people might fit in it. Mm-hmm. And there was like 75, maybe, that <laughs> came in. And there was like 150 kids outside, like running up and down the streets and being causing trouble and whatever. And we were asking people around, we're like, why aren't they coming in? Like, they're all the punk kids are hanging out out front. And they said, because it's the second last day of the month, they don't have their welfare checked yet. <sighs> so we're like, so you're telling me if we came tomorrow, then you guys would ever <laughs> be hundreds of people in here? They're like, yep, pretty much. Oh. So we ended up getting in because we were just like, I just want more bodies in here. This is weird. Like, wanted to see kind of like sneaking people in the back door because we just figured well the club's not making any money either way so at least there might as well be humans in here to see us play right yeah yeah <laughs> and uh so whatever we snuck a few people in here and there and uh i also remember infamous bastards um i think they had like a south american background or something those guys and so like they're really you know like a pretty abrasive sounding band when they play. But after their set, we we're hanging out in the van with them, and they had an acoustic guitar, and they were playing like those crazy like Latin music, like Latin like crazy sambas or something. And we we're just like, what is it? And they they were all like heartfelt ballads and stuff, and they were playing and they're belting them out. And I remember just being like blown away, like these guys are awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are, they just had a switch, you know what I mean? Like where they just they go on stage and they did their thing, and then they came off and they were playing this like beautiful music on acoustic guitars and belting out the lyrics like it's so heartfelt, like they yeah. you know they had broken hearts and whatever. I was just like, this is crazy. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, um, you know, being in a band like in the, on in your twenties is a uh, everything is like oh that's new. This is a new thing, you know and. Um, yeah, you know, and it, I, I guess you don't really. Do you have you played in a band lately over the past ten years or so? No, after, after MSI, I played in a few things. I played with Yard and Spooky, and did some things with them for a little bit. And um, a Spooky and Ruben, other Spooky Ruben, yeah. yeah, and just a few little other things that didn't really go anywhere. And then I kind of felt like I didn't have anything more to say in music. I felt like I was just repeating myself with the riffs and stuff, and so kind of gave up playing music but i still had interest in it so then by this point i had met my i had met a girlfriend which became my wife and she was also interested in music so we we played together we did some music together and then we both just kind of got sick of it and we said well what can we do as a couple like that's that still addresses the interest that we have in music but maybe some a different angle right like how do we mm-hmm. how do we explore that and do something together it'd be fun so um we went out we would always go see bands together and or whatever. So we went one night and um, we knew the bouncers at Lee's Palace. 
One of the guys was Rod Orchard. Mm-hmm. And um, so I knew him from the, the metal and punk days and whatever. And now it's, you know, we're in the sort of late 90s we're talking. Um, we would go to see shows at least Palace, and he would let me sneak in a video camera. And we would videotape bands. And so usually the way it would work is we'd show up at Lee's, talk to Rod during the opening bands, and then when the headlining band would go in, he'd just kind of open the door and let us in to film it. And so one night we went down there, and we were trying to tape this band from Chicago. It was like kind of a jazz thing, um, a band called Isotope 217. They were on Thrill Jockey. And so we show up at the show, and we think we're going to go through the usual routine of talking to Rod and then going in on the headliner. And as soon as we show up there, he says, don't talk to me. Go right in right now. you got to see the opening band. you got to see this. And we thought, wow, this is something exciting. It's, you know, a guy that works at a club is pretty jaded about music. <laughs> if he's just excited about it and, and telling us, don't talk to me, go straight in. So we run in, and we start to see, uh, we, we go in, and we hear this band playing, and we walk through the crowd, and we show up at the front of the stage, and we realize it's a one-man band. The guy, all this music is coming out of this one dude. And so I took my camera out and I, I filmed the last two or three songs of his set. And um, and then after the show, I found out who he was and whatever. And it was uh, the Lonesome Organist, who was also on Thrill Jockey. Yeah. And so on the ride home that night, Heather and I were talking about, like, I think we found our calling. Like, let's make a documentary about one-man bands. There's a bunch of people that we were into, like Hazel Adkins and Bob Log Third and <laughs> King Louie and all these other people that uh like this didn't seem to be documented like they had records though they had cult followings but no but no like real mainstream kind of documentary about them or or anything you could really read about them no books about them that kind of thing mm-hmm. and we were thinking like you know guys like hazel atkins have been doing it since the 50s they're gonna be dead soon like somebody better document these people right yeah. so um we went home from that show and we decided to make a documentary so we were still involved with the music scene but now we brought in video with it as well and and we ended up we didn't really know how we were going to do it or what, like we didn't know if it was going to be a, like a feature length film or it was going to be a short or if it was going to be a music video or what. Yeah. Yeah. But we, but we knew that we should film these people before they die. So we went home and had that sort of mission in mind. And that's what we ended up doing for the next like five years really? producing this, this movie. And so we would take road trips and we were, you know, whatever. And, and just like getting to meet Hazel Adkins was like a dream come true. <laughs> He's a guy that I'd been listening to for years when I was in MSI and, and listening to punk, I'd listen to this rockabilly guy, and I'm like, this guy's way more punk than anything that we could ever imagine writing. Like mm-hmm. this, this dude played all these instruments by himself, and even the story about how he learned to do that. He was a little kid living in a tar paper shack in West Virginia, and he would hear on the radio, he would hear the announcer say, that was Johnny Cash, or that was Hank Williams, or that was you know, whoever. But they never said that it was Johnny Cash and his backup band, right? or it was Hank Williams plus whoever playing yeah, with him. And yeah. so in, in Hazel's primitive mind, he figured, Oh, that's one guy playing all that stuff. I guess I better figure out how to do that. <laughs> and so he ended up getting like, um, you know, like just empty oil cans and, and buckets and things like this and made a drum set and, you know, made a guitar out of, you know, out of whatever scraps. And he started doing it and figuring it all out. And, it, and so this is like in the fifties. And then he goes to a club and he plays a show in, in Charleston, West Virginia. And people are looking at him like he's out of his mind, right? Like he gets up on stage and starts playing as a one-man band. And people are coming up to him and saying, what are you doing? And he said, I'm playing music. And they go, where's the rest of your band? And he looks at him and he's like, what? <laughs> What's a band? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, what are you talking about? And his go, eyes are open like, what? Really? Yeah, I went through all this was, for nothing? literally like that. He's like, what? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And so people explained to him that you're supposed to have a backing band. And then he just kind of went, oh, well, I figured out how to do it. I'm just going to keep going now. <laughs> and so he ended up putting out this, this slew of independent singles on like weird regional labels and lived in obscurity for several decades until the cramps, I guess, in the late 70s, discovered one of his uh, seven inches in a thrift store, um, a song called She Said, and they covered it. Mm-hmm. And when they covered it, it got out to the whole cramps, rockabilly, psychobilly kind of crowd, you know, punk crowd. Mm-hmm. And people started looking to have Atkins and people at Norton Records discovered that through through that. And because uh, Miriam Lena was in the cramps at the time, you know, so she ended up talking to um, Billy Miller and they ended up putting out Hazel Atkins records in the 80s. And from that, he ended up going on little short tours with like Public Image Limited. And he started to get like a taste of a mini taste of success. Yeah. Anyway, but then it, then the light kind of dimmed again, and he just went back to his cult 
status. Anyway, I had been following all of this stuff throughout the, I guess, 90s and listening to all this and then kind of thinking like, wow, it would be amazing just to be able to give something back to a guy like that, you know? Like, he'd lived yeah. his life in obscurity. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do a movie about that guy and, and get his name a little bit more out there? Yeah. And so that was, that was sort of the uh, what got us into that, going down that road. Yeah, documenting, I think there was another, yeah, I remember seeing some of your videos of live bands playing, and you were the guy that would have all that video, and, you know, and do you still have all, like, the VHS tapes and everything of, of all the shows you you uh, taped? Pretty much. I transferred a lot of it over to DVDs, just to make sure the tapes don't get destroyed, yeah. but um, I still have mostly originals, yeah. Wow, you know, it's so... So nobody better than to document something like the early hardcore scene, or I guess the hardcore scene in Toronto, than than you. Who's your writing partner? Well, I guess yeah, I guess you're right. When I think about it, like that's what we did with the fanzine. That's what the first creative thing I did in that in the music end of things is we did a fanzine together, the Metallic Assault stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then and then like then the movie, and now we're doing this book. And yeah, I just I like the idea of documenting things. It's kind of fun, right? Like it's yeah, it's trying to it's it's part. Uh, looping i guess and um and also is to give like in all these cases i feel like giving res- proper respect or, or whatever recognition to the these people who've done amazing things and just have have got the short end of the stick you know what i mean yeah. it was like that sort of like with the that metal scene when bands they didn't really get the short end of the stick but bands were just starting out like slayer and metallica and whoever and the mainstream just thought it was a joke they just yeah. thought this was pathetic like you know like you don't sound like rat you don't sound like yeah. Quiet Riot. You're you're pathetic. Yeah. And and we just didn't see it like that. We're just like, no, we got to get the word out there. This is how, this is the this is the good this is a good thing. Like you got to get the word out on it, right? So yeah. we did that, and the same thing with the one man bands, and same thing with this hardcore book. Now it's like yeah. bands like Direct Action, YYY, Chronic Submission, Sudden Impact. All these bands put out great music, but most of it was on cassette, like I said earlier, and it didn't get the widespread recognition that bands from Boston or LA or New York or wherever got. Yeah. They, they had, they had more of a support structure. I think there was labels in those, in those towns, Washington DC with discord. They just had people backing them. And, um, and I don't think we had so much that we had Brian Taylor who at least had the foresight to record all these bands, but then he didn't have the funds to put them out on record. So he put them on cassette, which at the time, did those bands a favor because they didn't have money to do anything. So at least he got them out on cassette and, and got a local following and then they could play shows and they could make a bit of a living from that yeah. to whatever degree. But it didn't get really tapes didn't, didn't get as far reach as vinyl did. Yeah. I was talking to Graham Boyce about him trying to compete with American record labels and uh, everything like he would look at, he was like, yeah, he just had a zero and that's the American um, budget for a record, you know, and he couldn't compete with it because, you know, we're just frail little Canada up here. But at the same time, we had our innovators and we had our people that were part of that fed the scene. And if there wasn't these people, that there would have been like um, a different situation in the music business and the scene all the way through up into present day. So, you know, we have our granddaddies of punk rock and hardcore and we have our, you know, bands that follow that, you know. There's a lot of, you know, and it happens in the States more because I guess because there's 10 times more people down there. But the fact but for every story, I guess for every story we say is a success in the states, there's a hundred that aren't successful either. You know what I mean? Like that's true. There's play, even more. Play, I'm saying, yeah, yeah. There's bands playing in Kansas City or whatever that aren't, you know, getting any recognition either. It's like again, it's these major centers. I think that at least in the hardcore times, they are the ones that got the reputation, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then you get you get spottiness like through in, in like the Midwest or whatever. You get bands showing up here and there, and you know you'd have Touch and Go label like. There were some other spots, but in general, yeah, like it, we just didn't have that. So yeah, yeah, it's it's in. It's funny, like it it's happened since the dawn of time. Like since music was recorded and put somewhere, is that some th- somebody recorded it and somebody else recorded it with a prettier face and made it more marketable <laughs> and made it more yeah. popular. And then you know that's why you have bands like Led Zeppelin who completely ripped off everybody all the time and yep. got successful over it because they're pretty boys that could play and they're just yep. ripping off poor black musicians who are still broke. And, uh, yep. have you watched, uh, I don't know if you watch Netflix, but have you seen the F is for family series? 
No. There's a fake band on there called Lifted Riffs, and they're essentially Led Zeppelin. <laughs> okay. It's amazing. It's amazing. And they just sound and look like Led Zeppelin, but it's a cartoon. But uh, I'm, I'm, sure they, I'm sure Zeppelin loves that. Oh, <laughs> I don't think Zeppelin cares. I don't think Zeppelin knows what Netflix is. I, I'm going to probably go out and let me say that. Yeah, I guess if you're in Led Zeppelin, you don't care what anybody thinks about no, you. No, no, who point. cares? Absolutely. Um, no, I, I, and I appreciate that that it takes the person who sort of grew up in the scene to sort of properly document it. And, and that's you, you know, and people, and you're not like trying to get out there and sort of document like Howard Jones's life. Like that, that won't work. You know, like you're, you're getting and you're doing what you know, and you're doing the best possible service that can be uh, given. That's a, that's very positive because the story's going to get told right. Well, I think that um, the people in the bands and whatever, even though they don't know like me personally or my writing partner on this. So you were asking about him. Yeah. You yeah. know about him in the sex, but I'll, I'll fill you in on his background. But um, it's weird because even though these people don't know who I am from anybody, like I didn't met half the people we've been interviewing, but as soon as I just say, like I was in this band, even if they don't even know what MSI was, they might've just been like, yeah, I think I vaguely heard your band's name. Whatever. There's this weird, like instant credibility that like, that we all have with each other. Like Johnny Bordenko from Sudden Impact said yeah. it in the interview, he looked across the table at us and he goes, I might not know your daughter's name. I might not know your birthday. I might not know where you live or where you work. He goes, but I know that you think like I do. And I know you got my back and I trust you. Yeah. And it was just kind of this interesting thing because like when you're into that music back then, there were so few people that were into it. You knew that just instantly, if you were into those kind of bands, you knew how that person thought, you knew what their logic would be. And you had this thing. and it had this instant kind of bond and trust. Yeah. And um, so we found that as we've been going through this book, like I'll just, I've, I've literally like just emailed somebody, uh, you know, that I, that I heard of from being in a band or whatever, like guys in like, I don't know, YYY or whatever. And um, I'd be like, you know, I'd get in touch with their, their drummer. I'd be like, Hey, can I borrow your entire flyer collection and scan it for, can I borrow it for you from you? And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> and you're like, I've never met you before. Like, you know, that's, that's absurd to me that somebody would trust, but they just, they get it. They're just like, this thing is an important project for all these people to get some recognition and just a good, it's a good memory scrapbook. I think, you know, yeah. it'll be like a yearbook, a punk yearbook that never existed. <laughs> and it'll, it'll, you know, and, and the reality is like some of these guys are in their fifties pushing 60 now. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Like we interviewed Steve Goof last Wednesday, that dude's fifty nine, <laughs> and the memories are starting to fade a little bit. Like yeah. I'm not saying sixties ancient, but I mean things that he did when he was twenty three are starting to fade. Oh yeah, and things I did when I was twenty three so, are faded. Well, I mean, like there's things that we that we caught during the interview that we just know can't be true, but in his mind that's the way that events went. And um, so what are you going to do? Right. So we got to get these stories from these people. Well, they still have any recollection of these events, not to say they're all going senile, but you know what I mean? Sure. Like The stories just all kind of blend together. And sometimes you start to believe your own legend, you know? Yeah. And uh, that you're the tough guy and every story ends up with you winning the fight or whatever. And the reality is maybe you lost a few. Yeah. And, you know, so we got to try and get the story straight and no better time to do it than now. So, yeah, so my writing partner on this and the way this whole thing came up, I started an MSI Facebook page and I started just posting random flyers that was coming across in my house. And like most of them were pretty just to me, they were pretty boring, like local band shows. You know what I mean? It'd be like us, Sons of Ishmael and I don't know, whoever, Missing Link or something like this. Yeah. Right. And to me, that would be just like, yeah, that's like just a Tuesday you know, show or Saturday after matinee or like, it wasn't a big event, you know, it was like, Oh, that was a show that happened. No big deal. But there'd be all these comments on the page about the memories from that show, or people would start talking about other shows that, 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 that reminded them of, or they'd start talking about the people or whatever. And inevitably, like I'd put up a post and there'd be all these comments. And then someone would say, why isn't there a book about all this stuff? Yeah. And so I heard that a bunch of times for about a year, I guess, on these comments. And then one day, um, this guy, Sean Churry, wrote that comment on the page. And so I private messaged him and I said, why isn't there a book on this? Do you want to do a book on this with me? Right. <laughs> and it was weird because I didn't really know Sean. I kind of vaguely did. Like, he did a fanzine back in the 80s called uh, Still Thinking. Mm -hmm. And 
he was more political than we were. He was like trying to raise money for Nicaraguan relief and, and doing all these things. And one of the things he did was put out a seven inch for Nicaragua, I think it was. And um, there was a bunch of bands on it, like Guilt Parade and Sons of Ishmael, MSI, Nunfuckers and DOG. And it was called the Progress Comp. And um, so we submitted songs for that. And that was how we got to meet him. But we didn't really hang out together, but mm-hmm. we knew each other just from that association. And I knew that I knew again, I knew about his background and that he was, you know, a legit guy from that time who who got it, got what the scene was about. And so anyways, and he also put out a heresy record back then and some other stuff. So I kind of knew a little bit of his background. And so anyways, without really meeting, we kind of agreed to do this book together. And then we got to know each other over the last, whatever, nine months. Yeah. And the, the writing partnership has worked out really well. Now, how do you spread, how do you um, separate the, or divide the, the, whatever the responsibility is? Do you take each, take different chapters or do you have a mm. timeline and a constant, do you, do you riff off each other? Like, how, is it like being in a band? Uh, well, I think we just had a, like a brief sort of um, feeling out period at the beginning where we like for like once a week we would meet to have these book meetings and it would be me and him. And there's a couple other fringe people that have kind of jumped on board with the project too. Like Simon Harvey's one of them. Yeah. He kind of helped us a little bit at the outset and then went back to school. So he hasn't really put a lot of time in lately. Uh, but Steve Perry's another one. He's um, a guy that's been doing a radio show in Toronto for three decades, mm-hmm. um, punk radio show. So he jumped on board to help us. And so there's been a few people that we started at these book meetings. And we just sort of, through talking about what we needed to get done, people would just sort of volunteer for different tasks that that suited their strong suits, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, like, I kind of think that the task that that I liked and I think I'm pretty good at is getting to organize people, getting them together to get them down for the interviews, trying to figure out how the logistics of all that stuff. Um, I've also got, because I did the documentary and I've done zines and stuff, I think I've got a good idea of how the, the flow of a book should go and the layout and all of these things. So I'm doing a lot of the, uh, like once we do the interviews, I'm breaking them down and putting them into segments that kind of go together and I'm building the framework of the book. And um, Sean is, is good with doing the interviews and um, the research for the questions. Steve Perry's great at executing the actual interviews. Yeah. Um, Sean usually works the board, but he, he does the pre-interview stuff like getting the, getting the, uh, the facts checked and, um, you know, like doing a lot of the research and, and shares that responsibility with Steve. And Simon, like you said earlier, is kind of a, a know-it-all of, of, you know, a punk encyclopedia. So he's been able to help connect the dots um, on mm-hmm. some of these things for us too. Oh, and Dallas uh, from the Sadies as well. Has oh, been yeah, involved. Yeah. He was actually really, you know, gracious early on, like to introduce us to a lot of people that like they weren't really in our circle. He has a brother, Travis, who's a couple years older and played in a bunch of bands back then. And knows all of those people, so he kind of volunteered to be our, you know, the people that were maybe a couple of years older than us, and he introduced us to a lot of those bands. And Dallas is really, yeah, he's really instrumental in trying to like get us in touch with people that otherwise we might not have been able to locate. So he really helped a lot. Geez, like a whole team over there. Well, and then from there, like you, like I said, you start to meet these people, right? Like yeah. so, Dallas would introduce us to someone. And then I would talk to that person and then they would introduce us to their friends that, you know, that again, like they're, you know, another step removed from the, the circles that we, that we all rolled in back then. So, and then those people would introduce us to more people and they would offer up their materials and their, their flyers and, you know, all the, all the photos and whatever they have. And so we've sort of over the last nine months, we've been amassing this, like, kind of feels like a, like a, like a punk uh, museum or something. There's things that, like, some of these artifacts that come into our hands, like, we almost are like, I don't want to touch this thing. Like, is this, this should be in a museum. It should be behind glass. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's it's weird, but, like, we have a reverence for a lot of this material. Of course. Like, there's, there's, there's uh, like, the paste-up, original paste-up flyers for shows that, like, I hung on my wall as a kid, right? I'd, I'd hang up the, the photocopied version of that poster, and now I'm holding the artist's original paste-up sheet in my hand. And it's just, it's just kind of a weird, mind-blowing thing to see some of these works of art and they're like it's the actual paper that the dude drew on and you know you can kind of see the the ink bleeding through the other side and you can kind of see the you know where they put uh whatever liquid paper to cover up things and, and redo things like it's just kind of cool to see the yeah. the thought that went into that 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even zine life back then was so exciting because it was people like doing things on their own and making things kind of neat. And you're kind of carrying that through. I think the yeah, the, the zine kind of vibe to it, right? Like, well, and it's important to us that like, it's going to be an oral history and it was important to us to not really put too much of our own narrative in there. Like right. we wanted it to be the people's like, we're trying to do this whole thing, this whole project in as much of an authentic way as we would have done it in the eighties. So like we would, in the eighties, you'd go and interview people and you'd have, let them have their own say, and you wouldn't really put your, you know, 30 year, uh, in advance, you know, yeah. Your spin references, on it. Yeah. Yeah. references yeah. On, into it. You just be like, well, this is what this person thought. So let's just hear what they think. Right. Yeah. So we're trying to, we're trying to do it like that. Even the way we were raising the money, like, we were thinking about um, talking to publishers and a couple of people had mentioned that they might be interested on the publishing side, but we thought we didn't go look for publishers back then. We just looked at each other and said, Hey, do you got like 50 bucks? You got a yeah. hundred bucks. Yeah. And we would just like kind of throw money in a hat and we'd figure out how to do it on our own. And so we kind of abandoned the idea of talking to any publishers, even though there was some interest, we just thought that's not what we would have done back then. No, nope. we would have, collected the money amongst ourselves and done it. So that's what we did. Yeah. So we got 16 people that ended up um, at, in the first week or so that we thought of this idea. There's 16 people that volunteered to throw in 500 bucks each. And so we got, we raised eight grand in like, a, you know, in less than two weeks, let's say, mm-hmm. um, to cover the cost of it all. And so we decided just to do it that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. But yeah, you know, it's funny. There's some sort of... Um... Uh, dishonesty of like you're saying get someone else to pay for it because that's that never happened you're right no one would ever like chip in like i talked to a guy in the show billy billy skelly who was doing a photo um, a photo book of all the punk shows he had um photographed and he was trying to do a gofundme it didn't happen so he ended up just doing it himself so he ended you know he just made the book himself and yeah that's that's sort of like the ethic of of you know punk rock that's sort of the healthy that's go get it, you know, like go do it and make it, make it yours. And don't expect anybody else to sort of like, you know, be on the same page as you, you know? Well, one of the, one of the uh, publishers that expressed interest early on, they sent us, like they showed us some examples. Of, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. There's some weird beeping. I heard a weep. weep, uh, weep. Yeah. Um, so they sent us an example of some of the things that they'd published. And basically, we're telling us, like, look, you got to kind of do it in this format. And I heard, like, when I heard that, I said to Sean, my partner on this, I was like, fuck that. <laughs> I didn't, like, I don't need another, I got a day job. I don't need another job telling me what to do. Like, I'm doing this because I have a passion for it. And I couldn't really give a fuck what this publisher thinks about it. Then you start and, getting notes. Like, once you sign the deal, like, oh, we have some notes. And well, they they were starting that before we even got to that stage. So I was like, that. "Fuck this! Yeah. I'm not doing that. That's not what this is about. This is not this is not that publisher's idea of how the scene. Well, like, I don't give a shit what they think. Yeah. This is for us to do, and the people that were involved with it. Like I said, the band, the people that were involved. It's for them to say what whatever the fuck they want to say. If it's good or it's bad, it's going to be in this, and you're going to get like what we want to do is uh, like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you started going more to shows in like the 90s. Yeah. And so we want to give people like yourself that have an interest in this subject matter, but maybe didn't go to shows in 84, mm-hmm. a, a sort of a taste and a, and a feel of what it was like to be at these shows. Like not just talking about the bands or whatever. Like we want to talk about the, the people who are part of the scene, the the mindset that you were in, what the club felt like what they looked like you know what the carpet at larry's hideaway was like you yeah. know what the hooker hotel upstairs was like yeah you know we want to paint a picture that is hopefully more interesting than just uh sort of the punk yearbook where o- the only people, would- people that were there we kind of hope it extends a little bit past that anyway and it it paints a bit of a picture because to me that a lot like a lot of what i liked about that time period was the feel of all that stuff with the clubs and stuff like the DMZ was a club that the the BFGs ran. Yeah. And in Kensington, right? Uh yeah, it was like on Spadina at the yeah. liquor store now. Yeah. And um but it was a punk club and it was like the first really kind of punk run punk club in my mind. I know that the Crash and Burn is the sort of famous one in Toronto with the diodes, but it wasn't in my mind it wasn't really a club. It was like a practice play, a warehouse. And um, it wasn't like it, it wasn't set up to be a bar and to, you know, have shows 
every night of the week. It was like a weekend thing. They would open up their practice place and, and have bands play. And it was very cool. And I give them all the respect, but the BFGs, it felt like a punk run. And I was never at the crash and burn to be fair. Mm-hmm. It was way before my time. It was like, you know, late seventies, yeah, but, yeah. but um, the DMZ punk feel to it. And it's like, you see the guy that's running it and he's got a mohawk and you know what I mean? And chains around him and whatever. And uh, it just had this weird, different feel that, like, if you started going to shows in the later 80s or early 90s, it became not really corporate, but, like, the Elma Combo didn't have a feel like it was run by punks. No. no. You know, it just, it had a feel like it was run by some corporate rock people that would let punk bands play there once in a while if they played nice and didn't get too crazy. Yeah. And the DMZ was a different thing. It was, like, you know, people going crazy. No one caring if they went crazy. They're just they're fine with that. There used to be this barrier in front of the stage. And at one point, the barrier got ripped down, and nobody kind of batted an eye. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like everybody's like, "All right, well, I guess we lost that barrier. Oh well." Yeah. Um, it had a different feel, so we want that to be kind of come across in the book a little bit as to how the band sounded, felt, played, and not just the band, but people too. Yeah, man. Uh, there's like the, there's different there's different punk houses that were going on at the time, like Happy oh, House, Quarantine House where there would be like a lot of parties, um, like rent parties with bands playing. And like, it was just a, a social scene, Right. And like things like that, that were kind of like, as I was growing up, they were things that were not in my circle. Cause again, I was straight edge. I wasn't going to these drunken parties, but there were things that were kind of on the fringe of my circles that I was always curious. Like, Oh, I wonder what that's all about right now. We can mm-hmm. kind of research it. Um, we got photos of some of the parties that would happen in these places. Some of the people who were hanging out there and get more of a feel of what it was like to be at these places. Oh, I can't wait. When, uh, so do you have a sort of a, is it just going to go until it's done or do you have like a, did you put a time limit on when this is supposed to be done? Well, we kind of, we wanted to have it done. The plan was when we started this last, I guess like October, mm-hmm. the plan was to have it done within a year. We wanted to have it done for this October so that we could release it during the, uh, not dead yet festival. Mm-hmm. And um, we want to have, like, when we do the book launch, we want to have um, some 80s hardcore bands reunite to play the show. And a few have already agreed to do it. Mm-hmm. But we aren't going to be ready in time for this October. So we decided, you know, there's no point in rushing it. This book has taken 30 years to, you know, yeah. to come together. It doesn't matter if it takes 31. So we're looking at probably like the spring, early summer of next year. We just figure, like do something when the weather's nice, people want to come out again after the winter and, um, and want to go to a show. We'll put on a book launch show and it gives us time now to kind of stretch out and um, gather more materials, interview more people. Like I was saying, the further we're going into this, the more people we're getting introduced to, the better the material's getting. You know, it's like yeah. there's people that we've never heard of that are supplying great stories and stuff, you know? So yeah, we just feel like there's no reason to really rush it. It's, let it take its course and um, it comes out when it comes out. But that's at this point, we're looking at probably late spring, early summer of next year is our goal. Yeah. It's good not to sort of get too much content and sort of edit. Are you editing as you're going or are you putting it all into a big bucket and then going to edit it after? Like what's the process? Uh, a little, a little bit of both. Yeah. So we're trying not to edit out too much. We're, we've got a lot of repetition because we want to try and piece together stories of people telling little bits of the story so that they all blend into a big story. Right. So we have to get the best versions of people telling the story. So we're keeping all the pertinent parts of, of these versions. And then from there, we'll edit it into more succinct sort of uh, manuscript. Mm-hmm. But the way it's, we don't want to edit too much stuff now, but like there's some stuff we know is not going to be relevant and yeah, we can edit that out. But yeah. I would say we've got way, way, way more than we could ever hope to you know we would have like a encyclopedia's worth of uh Toronto punk knowledge if, if we just put everything out as it is now like some yeah. of these interviews these band interviews are going like four and five hours really and um and and you know and we've done like at least a dozen of those wow. so yeah and like this wednesday coming we're doing jill heath and uh, brian taylor together nice so that'll probably go another four or five hours with those two talking yeah and so yeah like they're going to be edited down pretty dramatically but the reason why we're doing them by the way at the um we're doing them at ciut um u of t radio station we're doing them in their uh, sort of b studio yeah. so we can record it there and the sound quality is good steve perry is going to use it on his uh, equalize and distort um punk show yeah i was giving you my next question yeah like all that yeah like when when the book comes out um he's going to be airing this 
series of interviews. He's going to whittle them down from four or five hours. He'll whittle them down to about two uh-huh. um, and put in some music parts and whatever. And um, yeah, and then he'll air those segments and help promote the book and obviously the bands, right? Well, that's cool, so, man. Yeah, so the, so the interviews are going to serve a, a dual purpose. Amazing. And maybe uh, you should do a podcast, too. That's what all the kids are doing now. Well, uh, we can come back on yours and do Absolutely. something about it. Yeah, man. Like that. Would, yeah, I would. Uh, this is. I when I knew you were write, writing a book, I was like, now I don't know where you were at with it at the point and all these things. So it was like, I gotta wait for the right time, you know. And I like. I know we were joking. You were joking at the start, saying I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel, but I definitely not, dude. You you you're putting. You're doing great. You know something that needs to be said. Need to be needs to be uh, completed. You know. So amazing. I'm really glad that uh, you know. Well, one of the, one of the cornerstones of MSI was always the uh, self depreciation. So I'm just keeping that up. That uh, <laughs> keeping up the persona. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I can't tell you. I'll tell you off air the the bottom of the barrel people, but uh, you know. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to be in the middle of the barrel. You're middle of the barrel. Hey, congratulations. Yeah, see, I made it up from the bottom. Thanks. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. All right, man. Thanks. That was Derek Emerson, everybody. That was fun. And when that book comes out, we'll probably do something a little bit more involved when it comes to that so we can promote it properly. Welcome again, Bose All Natural, Lugtread, and Full-Time IPA. Those are the beers I talked about at the start. Uh, I got to tell you, Lugtread is delicious. They're in these huge bottles, too. Big, huge bottles. They're delicious. Go, you can pick them up anywhere. I have them at two of the grocery stores that I frequent. And they're also, of course, in the beer store. So go get that Bose All Natural. Let me know what you think of it, too, because I, I love it. It's delicious. It reminds me like it does remind me about being in Germany because the bottles are enormous and it tastes like German beer because they have a German brewmeister. Okay. I am taking uh, two weeks off. So what I'm going to be having in the next two weeks is best of episodes. And I've been determ- trying to determine who's going to be the best of. And I have two people lined up that's going to be the best of because I'm going on holidays. I haven't gone on a family holiday since I don't I don't know maybe two years ago going down to Florida and this time we're going out east to PEI there might be an episode I'm bringing obviously bring my podcast stuff and if I meet anybody I'll interview them and I'll put, put the show up but uh, yeah it'll be very loosey goosey if it does happen but I'm going to get two episodes together that are going to be best of in your house okay all right, everybody. Yeah. Okay. So don't forget, Amazon shoppers, don't forget to go to appleart.ca slash Amazon to shop and support the show. Don't forget about my Patreon campaign, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Become a patron. Okay. So I'll see you in about three weeks. No, actually, I'll see you next week, but it'll be with uh, in a different intro, obviously, and, uh, and a repeat episode. And uh, you can just have to wait and see who it's going to be. Okay. See you next week. Kind of.